If you have a copy of the Lord's Word with you, please turn to the first chapter of the very first book, Genesis chapter 1. I know this morning we looked at the last chapter of the entire Bible, and this, uh, this evening we will be looking at the first chapter. Particularly, I'll be focusing on the creation week, the first 25 verses. I may not read the entire uh, passage out loud. I may stop or jump ahead. But the focus this uh, this evening is really to speak about the different creation day day views. There are different weeks out there, and my main objective this evening is to equip you equip you with the knowledge about the different views that's out there that we will run into in conversations with friends or family or what we will see online. But before we hear the reading and the preaching of God's word, let's approach the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much for this evening to close out your day. Lord, we pray that you may uh, cause us to really think about what it means about this foundational issue about the creation week and how to live for, for you and how we are drawn by your power through this creation week. And Lord, the, the pinnacle of that week is your, your rest, the, the Sabbath, which we are celebrating today. And Lord, as we reflect on these words, let these words transform us and inspire us and spark that, that fire in our souls to, to continue to serve you until you return or, or, or until you call us back. In your name, Christ Jesus, amen. Now hear the infallible, preserve, and errant word of God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light, that it was good. And, he, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it uh, divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above it, the firmament, and firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered to, together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gatherings together of the waters he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed it is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to defy the day from the night, and let them be signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for the lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. 
and it was so. Then God made two lights, two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters around, uh, abound with abundance of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth and across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and everything living Every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle creeping things and the beasts of the earth each according to its kind and, and it was so and god made the beasts of the earth according to its kind the cattle according to its kind everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind and god saw that it was good let me just add more more verse 26 forgive me then god said let us make man in our image according to our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all things that creep on the earth this concludes the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Thanks be unto the Lord. The topic about creation has always captivated people. I think, I think we are driven with knowing this question, the plaguing question, how did all things come to be? Was creation always there, or did it have a beginning? Did, did all things that we see around us, did it come through an evolutionary process, with time and chance acting on matter? Or did someone create the universe and who's sustaining it, who's, who is sustaining it now? We, we have that in our first passage of the Bible, the creation of all things. From the very first page, the first page of our Bibles, we are given a very detailed account of what is known as the creation week. Many Christians through the ages have disputed about what exactly is taught here. Did God speak all things in existence in six 24-hour days? Is the earth 6,000 years old? What does the Hebrew word yom for day mean here? More tragically, did God use evolution as a means to bring about life on this little ball we call earth, floating in this universe aimlessly? Regardless of the historical and current debates, we have an issue that must, re- must be resolved. The days of creation is not merely a dialogue of possibilities, but a foundation of our faith. Let me say that again. The days of creation is not merely a dialogue about possibilities, but the foundation of our faith. If we lose this foundation, then we undermine the very word of God to which we are saved by. This evening, I want to look at several views with you. The views I want to discuss really are just four views, and there are way more than four. Um, I found a website that had nine, another website that had 15. There's a mixed match of different views, and we don't have all evening to discuss all those views. And I don't want to waste your evening either. I want you guys to spend time with your family. But the four views I want to primarily look at is theistic evolution, the mytho-historical or history view, 
the framework interpretation or hypothesis, and the traditional view. These views you have probably heard or read about online, and they are currently influencing biblical scholars, congregants like yourself today, even our culture around us. The purpose of discussing these views is to equip you with the knowledge to examine them to stand and to stand firm in the uh, truths of Scripture. <laughs> I'll lay out my cards right now on the table for you. I am a 24-hour, you know, six-day literalist guy, traditional view. But I will say this, the framework, interpretation, I have great respect for. The other two, I do not. Theistic evolution and the mytho-historical view, I reject utterly, and I think it's incompatible to biblical Christianity. And before we dive in into these different views, it's very important to understand where I'm coming from. I'm coming from with a different perspective, at least I think I am, maybe not, but a different perspective with the, the people who I run into and who I serve with. A lot of young Christians that I meet, or better yet, the young converts that I have in my unit, they always, the first question when they believe in Christ, they always ask me, can I still trust science? And yet, trust the word of God. Like, yes, you can. Science, all truth is God's truth. And that's my argument with them. It doesn't matter what we think. We could be totally wrong. But God can never be wrong. God doesn't lie. And God doesn't change his mind. He's not the son of man that he changes changes his mind. Nor man that he should lie to us. What God has spoken to us in the first chapter of Genesis is for our edification and confidence to rest on the God who created all things and who is sustaining all things. To discuss these different views, we are, we are really examining our brothers and, and sisters in Christ, those who, who hold to the substitutional atonement of Christ, who proclaim the Holy Trinity, who stand on the, the firm foundation that we are saved by faith alone. They just disagree with this foundational issue. And I, I don't want to call out names here, but there is one name I will mention earlier, and I have great respect for it, and I'll say who that name, who that is later. But to, uh, to discuss these four views, we all agree that God is the creator of all things. That's a fact. Even theistic evolution agrees to that. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. God created all things. They would agree to the verse verse of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They would say that God, who is, God is the spirit, infinite and eternal. They would agree with that. Same with the mytho-historical view. Same with the framework, guys. Even of the 24-hour guys, we could all high-five each other that God is spirit, infinite and eternal. I'm not quite sure what the theistic evolution view or the mytho-historical view about God being unchangeable, but that's a different discussion for later. But without further ado, let's dive deeper into it. First view, the theistic evolution. I would point to the Bible verse for you to give their points, but there really isn't a Bible verse supporting them. Matter of fact, they use the book of nature, what they observe from secular science, to influence their interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. See, the idea is that God created the cos- cosmos, the big cos- uh, cosmic picture of everything that we see around us. The universe, the planets, the sun, the stars, all matter. And he formulated it in such a way 
And through creation and providence acting on God's you know, ordained time, he formulated life through a process of evolution, which is, which is that simple organisms evolve over time into more complex organisms. Time acting on matter and chance creates the variations or mutations to which, uh, that produces complex organisms later on. You see, many want to unite the mainstream secular science and the, its teaching and marry it with the biblical doctrine of creation. And the purpose to this position is to give Christians and other theists credibility in the scientific world. And if we're honest, we want, we, want, we want to have that. We want the world to really consider and take serious our claims about God, the arguments for his existence. And for some, that is them taking this position of theistic evolution. Their objection to the traditional view is, why can't God create the universe or create life on this planet through evolution? I'm sure you've heard that, and some of you may have thought that one time or do hold it now. Couldn't God just create life by time, matter, and providence acting on each other? No, I will commend this view for their high view of God's providence through ordinary means of creation and providence. That's part of the Westminster Confession of Faith, that God created all things, and that through creation and providence, he's ordaining everything to come to pass. So they have a high view of God's providence, but that's as best as I could give them you know, positive remarks the problem isn't about God working through a creation of providence. Rather, the issues arise when we examine what evolution teaches compared to God's word. The first problem we have is the problem of death. Death comes before or after the fall. In the Bible, after the fall. But for the theistic evolution or just in the natural secular science, death, death is a natural process and it's sometimes seen, it, it is seen as good. It, if you, if you uh, remember your textbooks from high school, death actually helps the next generation to grow and the variations to pass on the next life. And then once you die, but before you die, you have to pass on your genetic code to the next generation. And through that process of death, the variation of mutations, you have the more complex organisms. And when, when the theistic evolution uh, 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 you know, proponents, when they use that position and look back in the bible they are they have to do a gymnastic you know twirl around the exegetical views of the fall or death itself they have to say that death was actually before the fall matter of fact death should be seen as good but the issue is not just about death before the fall there's another issue the uh, body soul unity secular evolution denies the body soul unity why naturalism argues only for materialism, that all things are material. There's no non-material things out there. Theistic evolution agrees with, with traditional Christianity or traditional uh, views of creation that there is a soul, but the problem arises how the soul came about in an ev- evolutionary process for, theist, uh, for the theistic evolutionists. Let me quote a philosopher from Arizona. His name is Saranja Gangdading. He is technically from Jamaica, but his family's from India, and he is a Presbyterian minister. Um, and his, his, his story is remarkable. And a couple of his brothers, is, or, well, one's a, um, a guru in, in Hinduism, and the other one's a philosopher at Yale. 
and he's a pastor who teaches philosophy at a dinky college in Arizona. But he says this about theistic evolution. I love what he says. Bear with me one second because he is not a page turner. But what he says is really profound. He says this, Theistic evolution, like historic theism, maintains that man has a soul which survives death of the body and and in addition incorporates evolution by saying that a hominid or humanoid became a man when God infused a soul in it. Theistic evolution's view of of infusion of the soul requires saying that life and the soul are not the same. But since the soul is the center of awareness, and since the hominid without the soul already had some uh, some form of perceptual awareness, having both life and soul would produce two centers of awareness, which is contrary to the unity of one conscious of li- consciousness of life. This would permit the soul to leave the body, and f- uh, for the being to continue to be conscious. What Gandhian is getting at is that the soul and body can be separated. And the body still live. That's against historic Christianity right then and there. This is not a lack of interpretation of the Bible, but it's a lack of critiquing the major implications of the evolutionary worldview and adopting it and changing it or trying to uh, marry it with biblical Christianity. One could object to say that, well, God created everything else through an evolutionary uh, process, but with Adam, he created him directly. Well, if that's the case, why wouldn't God just create everything direct, directly? You just undermine your whole position of holding on to theistic evolution. Finally, this position, just like evolution, is continuing today. If that is the case, and if we are still evolving, then the implication is that some are more involved than others. That means there are some who are more in God's image compared to others. And beloved, we already know where that worldview takes us. Just look back in world history and all the atrocities, the genocides or the Holocaust. That takes us back to that very foundational issue of treating people less image bearers than others. This is why I argue that no Christian ought to maintain this view. This is utterly contrary to God's revealed word and is against the moral law. We must not allow our secular institutions to influence the God's, uh, God's truths found in Scripture. The second uh, view is called the mytho-history his, view, or mytho-historical view. And the, the mytho-historical view is, is the same error as, as the theistic evolutions take, but they flip-flop. Instead of taking the modern, believing, unbelieving science of today and reading Scripture back into it, they take the unbelieving world of, of Genesis, the, the, the pagan uh, cultures around Israel, and their myths and their histories, and they advocate that we should read, in fact, Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1 through 11, just like the ancient pagans did, and their uh, creation stories. The biggest proponent of this view is William Lane Craig, a Christian philosopher who has defended theism longer than I have been alive. Though William Lane Craig has done, done some good to defend the faith, he ultimately undermines the foundation, foundational message of the Bible by promoting this mytho-historical view. First, we must understand what Craig means by myth. Craig does not mean by myth like we understand it today. For example, we understand myth like this, the myth that the government cares for you. 
See, some people are paying attention. I love that. Or the myth that if you drop a penny from the Eiffel Tower, that penny could kill somebody. No, Craig clearly defines myth like this. A sacred narrative or sacred narratives which seek to explain how the world and man came to be from a present form. What, what he really means is this, that the mytho-history view approaches Genesis and the events of the creation week as the language of mythology of the people of that time period. So what he says is that how God created the universe in a, a week, one week uh, duration is actually just a cloak, a veil of actually what happened. And God allowed the people of that time to understand creation in a one week duration. It's not literal. This is how most people understand epics like the Iliad or the Odyssey. Actual events that took place, cloaked of the language of that time period, or even stories of Atlantis. I remember everyone viewed it as Atlantis as a fake pagan you know, story. But now you have on Joe, Joe Rogan's podcast and other outlets people actually arguing that Atlantis is somewhere in North Africa. And they have you know, um, geographical locations and descriptions of Atlantis from pagan philosophers to point out where it's at. And people are buying into this. And when it comes to understanding the creation week, Craig, William Link Craig says, this is, this is what he says, it's fantastically false. Why? Because the author of Genesis 1 used language or concepts, concepts known in their time to describe how God created. And the text of Genesis 1 cannot, therefore, according to Craig, mean a 24-hour period day. Because day 1 had light when day 4, the sun and moon were created. What I found interesting reading through his position, he attacks the 24-hour literalist day more than any other views. He doesn't attack the day-age theory. He doesn't attack the gap theory, which is not really much of a theory nowadays. No one, he doesn't attack the framework guys. He doesn't attack the theistic evolutionist. No, he attacks the uh, traditional view. The The Achilles Hill myth pun intended, to the mytho-history view that Craig fails to, uh, fails to see is that he doesn't interpret Scripture with Scripture. Let's recall what God says to Israel when he gives them the law concerning um, the Ten Commandments. He says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Why? Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath for the Lord your God, and it you shall do no work. Then he adds this clause, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and and hallowed it. See, when it comes to creation week, God literally made the week, made all creation one week, and our creation, our work week reflects that creation week. See, Craig doesn't see it like that. Matter of fact, he just sees this one big myth to describe who made the universe, not how the universe was made. Even when it comes to Genesis one twenty-seven, does he take this myth that God made God, uh, God made them male and female? Right now, people are disputing whether or not there's if there are two genders or more, or if there are no genders at all, or that's a social construct. There's one more issue that I want to add to Craig's view. Craig's view. This view, if you, if, if you know it or not, affirms what Rudolf Boltman once taught, a liberal theologian who wanted to 
do one thing to the Bible and all the miracles of the Bible. He wanted to demythize the Bible. For Boltman, he advocated the Bible had a kernel of truth covered a husk of myth. He wanted to peel that husk off. And for Craig, I know, I know he doesn't hold to that extreme view, but indirectly he is promoting it. However, how, how would one, one stop for advocating for the miracles as myths? How could one uh, start, uh, you know, with Craig's view, advocate that the walls of Jericho was just a, just a metaphor to describe how Israel overcame adversity? Or was Samson real? And for Craig, he only stops at Genesis 11. But why not the entire Bible? Why not? Moving on past that, I want to focus on the framework interpretation. I love this uh, view because, one, it's very exegetical. Outside of the traditional 24-hour literal day, they take the text very serious. If you see in uh, the first day, we see that God created the lights, verse 5. God called the light day and the darkness he called night so that there is evening and morning the first day. And then when you look at the fourth day, uh, and verse says, uh, well, I want to jump to verse 19, talking about the fourth day. But before that, he talks about the lights of the sky and the heavens and the sun and the moon, verses 16 through 19, right? So you see a mirror there of the first day and the fourth day. So the, in, uh, the framework interpretation view, guys, they take the text very serious. They see the first day mirroring with the fourth day. They see the second day mirroring with the fifth day, and third day with the uh, uh, third day with the sixth day. A lot of good Reformed folks hold to this view. Uh, most no- notable names are Meredith Klein, who taught at Westminster West, and also Gordon Conwell, or uh, one of my professors, Mark Fuado at, at RTS. Um, another advocate, Lee Irons, very reformed guys, and they're very faithful to the text. And I won't discuss more what they advocate for because they go into a lot of detail. The idea of the framework interpretation is the creation week is divided into two triads. The first three, day, day, first three days mirror the last three days, but the last three days govern or rule over the first three. For example, verse 3 says, let there be light, like I pointed out. And the, the formulation of the evening and mornings in verse 5. Then in verse 14, we see that God made the, uh, the lights in the heavens and he divided the day from the night. And then he tells us what these lights were, the moon, the stars, and everything else. Day 1 and 4 reflect off each other. If we look at the other days as well, we see in, in verse 9, day 2, God created the heavens and separated the heavens from the waters. And then in verse 20, we see that God created the birds and the sea creatures to rule over those realms, the sky and the waters. And finally, in verse 11, we see the formation of the dry ground and the vegetation thereof. And the crowning piece of creation for the dry land is actually man, which God made from the very dust of the land. And notice what the duty of mankind is, to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and take dominion. Why? Because we are made in God's image, and God's sovereignty is reflected in his image in us, and he wants us to rule over everything just as he rules over all things. But for the framework guys, I love them. They, they say the pinnacle of creation isn't man. 
They say it's the seventh day when God rested. As a cosmic king, he enters his rest after subduing all things by the power that he has. He enters that rest, and we see that beginning in Genesis chapter 2, the first three verses. And what they really stress is the seventh day doesn't have that formulation of morning and evening. Another feature to the framework interpretation is that they don't stress on the 24-hour literal days. Matter of fact, Meredith Klein says that's, that's just a theme, uh, theme or a thematic part of the story of creation. It's not a literal 24-hour days. It's just a cosmic picture of how God created the universe. It's not about how God created, but mainly who created. That theme is that God created all things, and he ordained his vice regents, us, image bearers, to rule over his creation. To be clear, the framework guys, there are framework guys who hold to a 24-hour literal day, and there are some who do not. Uh, to be fair, I used to be a, a framework guy who, was a, who, who held to that 24-hour literal day, but there are some problems to this uh, position as well. The major downfall is that to the framework view um, is actually what they hold to their strong feature Right, the the very unique feature that makes them look strong is actually their weak point. If the twenty four formula, uh, twenty four hour day formulation, morning and evening at each creation day, day one through six, is a major theme, why does the Holy Spirit speak these words to Moses to write for our edification? Why do you repeat those uh, words at all? Matter of fact, Jamie and I were discussing this this morning, and uh, when the Hebrew uh, language uses 24-hour day, saying that this is day one or day two, day three, they are being literal 24-hour day guys. They're not saying in that day of Hezekiah, talking about his whole reign. No, in day one, they mean day one. Hmm. And better yet, there's another feature that uh, the framework guys don't look at, or at least ignore, you see in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The waters were there before day one. Why is the, you know, day two set for the, the realm for the fish of the waters? Or better yet, day two and day three actually have uh, the waters being separated twice. Why only focus day two with the separation of the waters from the sky and not the waters from the earth in day three in their triad? They ignore that. Even though they're looking at this Texas scripture very, very faithfully, I would argue. Conclusion for me, I, I see the narrative of Genesis 1 should be, read, uh, should be read as a historical narrative. Our Lord created the heavens and the earth in a space of six days, or a span of six days, and he made it very good. The traditional view is the easiest one to read this. I've read it out loud. I don't think there's any conundrum with what it was said here. We see that God created the lights, day one. Day two, he created the heavens and separated the heavens with the waters. Day three, he separated the waters from the land. Day four, he created uh, the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea. Day five, maybe I'm messing that up, but day five, he created... What did he create on day five? I'm put, being put on the spot here. Maybe I messed up. Or day, day four, he created the lights again, right? He created the moon, the sun, and the stars. And day five, he made the uh, fish and the birds. And day six, all the uh, land animals. And then the pinnacle of that creation of the land animals were, in fact, us. See, even I mess it up all the time. But the, 
the conundrum is not how did God create this. The conundrum is how are we going to take God's word? Are we going to read this like majority of Christians throughout history who saw this as a historical narrative that God created everything in six days? I care less of the earth is 6,000 years old, like Ken Ham argues, or uh, uh, Eric Hoven, or Kent Hoven, or whoever. I care less about the, uh, the age of the earth. I care less about who made the earth and who is reigning over it now. As I see it, so many faithful men have stood on Scripture and argued for this uh, for the 24-hour literal day. And I think it makes sense looking at that uh, repetition of morning and evening after each day, minus the Sabbath day, which Hebrews chapter 4 opens up with and tells us. I love what Thomas Watson says. God has wrought creation or worked in creation as a curious needlework that we may observe his wisdom and goodness to give him praise due to him. See, the book of nature is God's words that will never change. The heathen has this book, and they observe it day in, day out, and they are without excuse. Creation is adorned with God's glory, and we should glorify God knowing that he is the creator of all things. That is the beauty, I would say, about the literalist view because we trust in God's goodness and power and might and working through creation and providence. Beloved, I, I hope some topics you learned from this morning, I, I hope I shared something different that you could you know, investigate further. I know I probably didn't uh, expound on it as, as good as, as, as I could. This week has been crazy like every other week that we experience here. But I just want you to be edified knowing that God is the creator of all things and that the words of Scripture we could trust as they are historically given to us from Moses. Let's conclude with Psalm 19 where God says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voices is not heard. Their line has gone throughout all the earth, and their words to the ends of the earth a world. And them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. His rising is from one end of heaven and his circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden hidden from its heat. That is our God who made all things. There's not one thing in this universe that God does not cry, mine. When we read Genesis 1, let us just grow in gratitude on the God who made all things and yet creates a new heart in us. Let us pray. Father God, we just give you praise for your creation week and your words of the Bible and from Genesis 1. Lord, we just pray that we may be inspired to investigate further of these words. Lord, that we may trust what you have said over the unbelieving world that tries to drown out your truth. Lord, thank you so much for providence, and we give you praise for everything that you have given us here. In your name, Christ Jesus.